Boys and ghouls, welcome to episode 66 of Dads from the Crypt, the Tales of the Crypt podcast. My name is Jason. I'm joined by Jody. Hello. Mondo's out tonight, but we have a great guest for you. He is a senior writer at Entertainment Weekly and the author of You Got Red on You, How Sean of the Dead Was Brought to Life. His name is Clark Collis. Welcome. Uh, hi there. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's a shame I'm not on episode 666 rather than just 666. I know. Well, <laughs> but, uh, give us a few years, we'll get there. Right. Well, maybe I can, maybe I can come. I can't really do the uh, the math to work out when that would be, but um, uh, thank you very much for having me anyway. Yeah, our, our numbering is kind of funky because we do like all the special episodes with Alan Katz and we do interviews and stuff. And it's like, do we count those? Do we not? So like technically we're like well over 100 episodes if you counted every single recording we put out but as far as like keeping up with the main line of episodes that we're reviewing we're at 66 okay all right great um so i want to hear about your book so uh when did this come out uh it the the hardback came out about this time last year so in the fall of uh 2021 and the paperback uh has just come out it's now it's now available to buy mm-hmm. nice and shot of that- the dead it came out in 2004 that it did come out in 2004. That's correct. Right. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. These are the best horror comedies. It's one, it's like one of the five movies I can watch with my wife. That's like, I think it's the only zombie flick I can watch with my wife. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's very, um, I mean, you, I, I, I did assume there would come inevitably uh, some part, so at some point in the writing process, I would become sick of watching it. Uh, <laughs> no offense to the film, um, obviously, but, but that never happened. And even now, <laughs> Um, if I'm in Britain, obviously I'm British. If, if I'm in Britain and it, uh, you know, turns up on a bit of late night TV, which it does pretty much every other day mm-hmm. uh, in Britain, then then I'm almost sort of like, oh god damn, now I've got to watch all of this uh, again <laughs> for the thousandth time. But uh, it's always fun. So my question is: so it's been out for um, over ten years, well over ten years. So why why now are you writing this book? Uh, I had. Um, written about four years ago i had written an oral history of sean of the dead for entertainment weekly magazine mm-hmm. and i had spoken to uh edgar wright the director and and uh cast members uh simon Pegg and nick frost uh and kate ashfield um and the producer naira park who's sort of like the fourth beetle of the uh, uh sean of the dead pop fuzz uh creative team um and I thought there might be a book there. I thought it was something that it was a movie that people were really into. Um, you know, people love Edgar's films and they love Simon and they love Nick. And there's generally a big fondness both in, in the UK and the US for uh, Shaun of the Dead. Um, and to be honest with you, when I, when I sort of started writing it a couple of years ago, my it was during COVID, um, mm. and I think I, it was partly because I wanted to uh, uh, to have a sort of side project um, to stop me going just generally mad. 
Um, so I signed a book deal and I thought, uh, you know, I've interviewed like six people, sort of the core six uh, people you would want to interview. If I interviewed like six more people, um, you know, that would be a dozen. And I would, and it sounded, you know, it sounded like an easy book to write it. I imagined it being like 175 pages. Uh, what actually happened was I wound up interviewing uh, about 70 people uh, for the book. <laughs> Uh, and it ballooned into um, uh, 425 pages. Uh, I think I think it warrants that that length. Um, although to quote, I think it's Mark Twain that said, "If I'd had more time, uh, that the article would have been shorter uh, about something that he wrote." Um, and so there is an element of that. Uh, but it just got it, there was a lot more story to it than I had imagined, uh, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I just, uh, uh, I'm really, I'm really excited to check it out. And you know, it's a, it's a movie that never gets old. It's, no, you know, you can always it, it, start it, it anywhere. There's always something that I never picked up before. Um, a line or reference. You know, they're, they're coming to get, we're coming to get you, Barbara. You know, to get yeah. behind me. There's all those, those little um, drops, and you know, it's been fun watching like Edgar Wright's career, you know, trajectory with like last well, night in Soho last year. I think the thing that what made the book um, good, hopefully, uh, was the input from Edgar, particularly because um, I think he thought, I think Edgar thought with with some good reason that everybody assumed that it was a really fun movie to make. Um, you know, because it's a bunch of you know, I mean, they're, they're real life friends, Simon and Edgar and Nick. It's set in a pub. I think people. A lot of people might just think, well, they sort of went to a pub and shot it there and had a jolly good time. Um, well, in fact, Edgar's memories of it are that no one wanted to make the film. No one wanted to give them the money for it. Uh, and then, you know, they had to build this set at the uh, Ealing Studios in London. During a heat wave, they shot it. Um, it was sort of like... a it was more like sort of apocalypse now in a, in a fake pub in West London uh, and Edgar. And if you, you know, I mean, now I think people know what an Edgar Wright movie looks like to a degree. Right. right. Uh, certainly the Cornetto trilogy was all the, you know, quick editing and, and uh, you know, sort of like ideas that he has. I mean, I mean, you know, in you know, in Baby Driver, which isn't one of the Cornetto movies, but right. you've got a whole film there that's sort of soundtrack. It's not a musical, but it's a movie where um, where uh, everything is happening in time with music. Which I mean, that in itself, I believe, was quite a hard pitch for him to make because people just didn't know what the hell he was talking about, basically. But <laughs> you know, he was very, very young when. He made Shaun of the Dead. Uh, and I, I think he sort of he's one of those directors that had made it in his brain and could see how it would work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, I'm guessing there are a lot of, you know, late 20-something directors that say they know what they're doing and then, you know, things go awry. Uh, and I think he had to battle and battle and battle to make sure that his, his vision ended up on the screen. Right. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the great, like, what ifs is if uh, Edgar Wright had done the Ant-Man movie. I, I still right. <laughs> really want to know what that would have been like. But Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that movie. Um, but, 
Well, it's tough because I think it would have been a really, really good movie. And like I said, I would love to have seen it. Um, but, you know, he doesn't make that and he makes something else instead. Right. Uh, and I'm sort, of, I'm sort of more interested in Edgar doing original uh, things. Sure. Although I'm sure it would have been a very original take on Ant-Man, which I'm, you know, if you look, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of that story really. Um but uh, it sounded like it was too original or too disconnected. Yeah. What was rapidly becoming an MCU, you know, the what was becoming the Marvel Cinematic Universe right. for, for Kevin Feige or whatever. Yeah, I think or I think you still have to like go with their flow. <laughs> I think if you try too hard to go against it, eventually it's just not gonna. Yeah. But, but it's uh, interesting. Was... He was he was pitching Ant Man and working on Ant Man before the Marvel Cinematic Universe existed. Oh really. wow! Right. <laughs> Right, right, right. Back in the day, when I think the rights were controlled by uh, Artisan, the the Blair Witch Company. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, his interest in that. I mean, he he really wanted to make a heist movie, which I mean, the finished result is 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 a heist movie to some degree. Right. But I think mm-hmm. he had, you know, I mean, if you look at the, you know, if you look at something like, I mean, I'm guessing now, but he was thinking of something a lot more like Baby Driver than 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 what it became. Right. Now, just to pivot a little bit, um, so the reason we how we got connected is because you reached out because you wanted to talk to Al Katz and Gil Adler about their yeah. podcast. So how did that come on your radar? Well, I had, I, and I can't remember what other podcast it was, but I was listening to uh, some movie podcast and they mentioned that they had been listening to you know, a, a I can't remember how many uh, episodes were in the first season, but like a 10 episode yeah. uh podcast about the making of bordello of blood and i just thought well that's crazy i mean that <laughs> <laughs> such a thing exists because that only be like i mean i don't know that's i mean that's cutting pop culture in a very in a very thin slice and i speak as someone who wrote a 425 page book about Shaun of the dead um but you know, my first thought, I guess, was that's crazy. But my second was, I, I have to check this out, and and so I checked it out, and I was, you know, utterly uh, beguiled and smitten by the podcast. And then, thanks to you, uh, you know, spoke to um, spoke to Alan and Gilbert, uh, and uh, you know, I had a great time talking to them, and then uh, and then wrote it up. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's actually it's funny because. Um... Al just texted me like a couple minutes ago, so he says hi. Oh, great! No, he <laughs> was uh, he was an absolute delight. They were both, but they were both uh, absolute delights. And it's it, it's it's interesting. I remember, you know, as a callow youth, I would uh, review movies and not really think about the consequences of what I was. You know, if I was like really slamming a movie, not really thinking of the consequences, although in truth is the consequences were mm-hmm. for the most part pretty minimal, whether I liked, you know, some huge major label, uh, um, major label release or not. But it is interesting. I mean, over time, I've, I've, I mean, I don't really review films anymore because, um, I mean, for a couple of reasons, one of which is that some of my, some of my favorite films I did not like on the first viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately it's not really a, uh, something a film reviewer can do to watch a movie and then sit around and think about it for a couple of months and then go and see it again and then go and see it again. You're not really given that privilege. But also over time, you begin to, uh, you know, you you sort of, maybe it's just something that, that happens when you get older, but 
you begin, begin to be a, a lot more cognizant and concerned, I guess, about the amount of effort that is put into even, yeah. you know, a bad movie. Um, and sometimes I think it must be harder working on bad movies because, you know, I mean, making a film is, is a damn near impossible enterprise. And I'm guessing a lot of people, you know, if you're working on something that, that you know isn't, stands no chance of being good, then how, how, how much tougher is it to get up in the morning? But it's interesting. I was thinking about Bordello of Blood a lot, though, that what is your, what is your, if, if I was reviewing it, not the podcast, but the actual film. Like, what is your responsibility here? Because, or how I would approach it if I had to write a review. Because, um, you know, having listened to the podcast now, you you know, you'd be like, "Wow, it's a miracle as a movie at all." People should be right. grateful. There's like, <laughs> people there should be grateful. There's ninety minutes of entertainment, and some people like it. I remember when I posted the the piece about the. Uh, the podcast, I'm sure we had one commenter saying, I think the headline was, you know, how a crappy Dennis Miller vampire movie became the year's best podcast. And someone was like, well, I really like that movie, you know, and, and it's kind of nice that somebody does. And I can't remember who said it, but I know that somebody once said in print or whatever that that every movie is somebody's favorite movie. You know, yeah, I've, I've, long, I've long had a theory that like everything, everything, like media that's existed, somebody it's their favorite thing out there. Right. There's somebody right. who's like, that's my thing. That's like, I'm going to get a tattoo of this, uh, you know, like, so it's like, for me. so it's, so yeah, it's kind of hard to bash something to a degree when, you know, someone out there is getting joy from it, but yeah, you have to look at it from like, yeah. is it the artistic merits? And then they also have to balance, like, what are they, are they ac accomplishing what they set out to do? Like, off you've seen like the new terrifier movie, like, is it successful at what it wants to be versus right. being a quote unquote good mass appeal piece of film? Right, right. So but really it's but it's just hard when you're writing reviews to sort of be like, well, this isn't necessarily a good movie, but Jesus, you've no idea how many problems I had. Right. You know what I mean? Like, how yeah. many problems? This is the thing though, that how many problems people had is I mean, people don't care. You know, in terms of whether it's a good, if it's a good movie or not. Um, I mean, I care. Obviously, I care. Uh, I, I I feel retrospectively sorry for the people that had to make Bordello <laughs> under those thirty <laughs> years on. But it's just interesting. I'm now. I mean, I get this is why I shouldn't be reviewing movies and don't review movies. But you know, it's that question of of should you handicap a movie? I mean, I mean, should you, you know. Uh, give a movie an extra grade or whatever because you know that it was made under absolutely terrible circumstances. And I'm guessing the answer is you should not, really. Yeah, because you can only judge by what's on what's you only judge a painting by what's on the canvas. So yeah. 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 But um but I mean again one of the things that like I, I've kind of set out to do is try to try to help them right the wrongs of that. So right. to pivot a little bit to our you know our announcement section. Is that we are doing a uh, script read of the script that they were trying to make um, for that was called Dead Easy, um, and that is scheduled for December the seventeenth at noon Pacific. Uh, we'll be giving out details on how to uh, partake in that. It will be a fundraiser for the Motion Picture Fund, um, which helps retired and uh, actors in need of uh, assistance, people in the industry. 
So uh, we don't have all the details yet. We're still working it out. But you know, like I said, I'm talking to Al right now, and we're um, hammering away on making a thing. But um, I've read it, and it's so much better than uh, what, <laughs> what we got. So hopefully this will um, ease that pain. Um, but tonight, tonight, we are talking about the Tales of the Crypt episode from Season 5, Oil's Well That Ends Well. <laughs> Jody, give us a plot synopsis. You know, we get a pun right there, like I an know. obvious pun this time. <laughs> Sometimes we get those titles and I'm like, I don't even know what they're trying for here. Um, so we open on the, I was a little confused at first. The Crypt Keeper is playing pinball and I think the pinball machine was talking to the Crypt Keeper in the Crypt Keeper's voice and then he talked. I don't know. Anyway, Crypt Keeper playing pinball. That, Just another fun visual. If anyone's wondering, that is a real pinball machine they made. So yeah. you can actually play that pinball machine. Oh, yeah. So uh, we open on a foggy graveyard and we can hear someone kind of grunting as the camera pans through the graves. And a woman is asking a man if he's been working out enough, if he's been taking care of himself. And then we see the two people. Uh, the man is named Jerry. He's digging up a grave as he talks to the woman who's named Gina, who is there in the graveyard, kind of in her lingerie. Uh, a voice comes from the coffin that he's digging up and it opens up to reveal friend of the show, John Kassir, uh playing Larry, who is alive and well. And uh, it, it's all part of a con to fake Larry's death and bury him for a payout and then dig him up. And then Larry gets out of the coffin, starts yelling at Gina, who is his wife, I think. Um Starts calling her names, but before he can finish, Jerry shoots him and Larry falls back into the coffin. Jerry says, you know, we've got this money now. Let's go to Vegas. But Gina says, I want to put it in a mutual fund. It's time to go back to work. So we got a couple cons here. At a bar. Are you saying mutual funds are a con? (laughs) Sure, whatever. I don't know anything about mutual funds. (laughs) Just Just because you're an adult doesn't mean you know about adult stuff. All right. I, I could I could probably make more sense out of the Vegas one than that. But anyway, at a bar, a man named Cardi is sitting at the table with his dad and his friends. His dad's friends. There's a bunch of old guys and this one young guy. And uh, Cardi grabs the waitress's butt and gets slapped. Gina comes into the bar and gets everyone's attention. And Cardi tries to make a move on her. He gets shot down. And uh, he says that she's a lesbian and... Gina, like, from behind, grabs his crotch and flips him up onto the ground onto his face. And she gets into it with all the men at the table uh, who called her a bitch. And uh, she chews them out and says they're just like her bosses. So they ask, what kind of what kind of business are you in? And she says she's in the oil business. And this is going to be hard for me, by the way, because I'm a southerner. And the word oil, it, it does not it does not my tongue doesn't do these words it's if i say oil and somebody is like what is he talking about that is oil but saying oil makes me feel like i'm like straining something out of my mouth that's not supposed to be there so if i say oil that's what i mean sorry (laughs) so jerry comes into the bar and he says uh he knew that he would find her there and he starts talking to her and like supposed to be kind of a secret thing but the men realize that he is supposed to be the scout out there and that he has found oil uh she tells jerry she'll pay him five thousand dollars to tell her where it is without reporting back to his company and he says i'm not going to lose my job for five thousand dollars 
the men at the table all offer $5,000 each, 25000 total, to hold back the report. And Jerry agrees and tells them that the oil is under the graveyard. So they all arrive at the graveyard the next day. And after the men go in, Gina and Jerry make it very clear this is another scheme as they talk to each other. Uh, there's a phony oil rig. There's there's phony oil rig to bubble up there. And uh, the land is owned by the city, so they can't just buy it outright. One of the men says he wants to set up a corporation and sell stock. But Cardi and his dad say, we need to protect our investment and keep this just between us. Jerry says he wants his money. And Cardi says to show up at the bar at closing time and you'll get it. Back at the bar that night, Jerry and Gina are waiting at the bar when the men arrive and give Jerry a briefcase with the money inside. And they say, there's something else, though. In order for us to drill, we need to buy up all the land around here. We all have money, but we need a fifth. We need somebody to be the face of this. If we can get $360,000, 72K each, and Gina, you contribute to your 72K, we can buy up all the land, get those drill rights. And so Gina sees dollar signs because she can take them for all of this money. Back at the hotel, Jerry says, we need to get out of town. We've already made 20K. Uh, this is too risky. Gina wants that big payday. And she says that Jerry is out of her league and he stomps out of there. The next day, Gina meets up with the men at the funeral home. There at the funeral home, Jerry is tied up. And Gina yells that she's going to kill him and ask where the money is. Jerry laughs and they hit him. And the men say that Jerry broke into their houses cleared them out, took all of their money, and they can't find it anywhere. Uh, Cardi heard Gina and Jerry fighting the night before, and that he asked if it's a lover's quarrel, and they say that they found Jerry's car in front of Joe Osborne's house. We find out Joe Osborne is the barmaid that uh, we met earlier. And so uh, Gina seems really mad. She brushes it all off and says, we need to get to work, gets a syringe full of acid that they use in oil drilling, and shoots him, or she asks him first uh, where he hid the money. He won't say anything. And she shoots him directly in the heart. And he cries out once and then dies. The men load him up in a coffin and bury him. So in the back of the graveyard, later, Gina's digging up the grave, saying they bought the whole thing. So this was a, the shot was not actually an acid. It was something to make him appear dead. And Jerry calls out from the coffin saying, get him out of there. When suddenly Jerry steps up behind her outside of the grave, says, if you're here, then who's in? And then we open it up the coffin and see that Cardi is actually in there alive and well. Jerry says the oil surveyor con is a three man con. And Gina says, well, why didn't you tell me that? I'm the third person. At that point, Larry, John Kassir, walks out from behind her and says, this is a three man con. And he shoots at her with his gun. It's just blanks. So the whole thing from the very beginning was a setup. The rest of those men who have been working on this, they all show up too. Everyone is in on it. Every guy is in on this thing. Um, and she says, it's my money. But Larry says it belongs to him now or belongs to them now. So that's her entire life savings that she's contributed here. They laugh about stealing her life savings. They get Cardi up out of the hole. And they realize that Cardi has oil on his shoe. 
there actually is a deposit of oil underneath this graveyard. And so uh, the men are all kind of in wonder here. Larry says, I'll be damned. And Gina says, yeah, that's for certain. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned and throws her cigarette onto the oil, blowing them all up. And that's the end of the story. But we have one of my favorite Crypt Keeper gags ever is at the end. We see the Crypt Keeper watching this episode on VHS and he rewinds it to a scene that has John Kassir's character and starts talking about how good he is. He says, this actor is as good as Gary Cooper or Robert Redford. And then his voice reminds him of someone. And obviously, John Kassir is the voice of the Crypt Keeper. So a really great closing gag this time. All right. Thank you, Jody. So, Clark, I think in your emails, you said you've never, you've seen the movies, but you've not watched a Tales from the Crypt episode before. I don't think so. I may have seen at some point like one or two, but I may be, may, may be confusing them with, you know, one of the Outer Limits reboots or the Twilight Zone mm-hmm. reboots or sort of back in the day they do. Um, I don't think, I mean, I grew up in the UK uh, and up until... Oof, the 90s, certainly, like we had four channels in all. <laughs> and so we didn't have, you know, cable. And, um, you know, we had a lot of, uh, you know, UK programming, and they used to repeat the hell out of that. And we would <laughs> buy, uh, well, not, I mean, it's not like I was buying them, but the networks would buy uh, American imports, uh, like Dallas, which oddly, this, <laughs> this, this, this episode, kept on reminding me of Dallas in yeah. various ways. Um, so, but, but, uh, and some of those would become big hits, Dallas and, and uh, Dynasty or Dynasty, uh, as they say in the States. And, um, uh, but I mean, there was a lot of stuff that British networks didn't buy or would buy and then put on like at three o'clock in the morning. I mean, I do remember seeing numerous episodes of the Friday the 13th TV show yeah. where they yeah. were, uh, I, my memory is they were tracking down haunted uh, artifacts right. uh, and there was no Jason Voorhees involvement. But I think what would happen is, um, you know, British network buyers would come over to uh, America and buy almost like job lots of programs, you know, and then, uh, you know, if it was if it was something, if it was a big hit, Dallas would be on at you know seven o'clock in the evening. But yeah, they might buy Dallas and then ten other shows to show in the middle of the night. And I don't think they ever bought. Uh, I don't remember seeing um, Tales from the Crypt. As I said, I did see the movie. Um, I definitely saw uh, Demon Knight at uh, uh, at the cinema, and I think that I. I, I call Bordello of Blood on, on video at some point in the proceedings. They may have released Tales from the Crypt on video, possibly, in Britain, but like the idea of renting TV shows, regardless right. of what they were, seemed like you would be like, well, we get TV free. We're not right. going to start renting <laughs> TV shows. Um, so, yeah, I had no... Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I knew that there were these big directors that, that had, had got behind a TV show, but I don't think I ever really, you know, if I saw, I, I, if I saw, I may have seen one or two, but, but no more. And of course I knew what the Crypt people was right. because that's something that just by, um, you know, pop culture os- osmosis, you clearly knew what the, but, but who the Crypt people was, but I did not realize 
that uh, the actor on this episode of the show was the voice of the Crypt Keeper until that great, as you say, that great final gag. And then I, you know, Googled John Casir and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, right, I understand. You know. Yeah. All right. So this being your first official uh, Tales of the Crypt episode you've watched, what, tell us what you thought. I really liked it. I really liked it. I, I'm a big fan of con movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to be sort of uh, fooled, and then for the you know for the magician to you know show show to show you his work. Um, big fan of the Sting, obviously. Yeah. Uh, the Mammoth movie, uh, House of Games, um, the and the Ocean, the first Ocean's Eleven movie, particularly. Mm-hmm. I think that counts as a as a con movie. Oh yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, the thing about, and I, like, I don't know whether this is the case with, uh, with, um, <clears throat> Tales from the Crypt, but a lot of these anthology shows, they're essentially morality plays, right? Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, you've got a bad person and he wants some, or, you know, you've got someone who desires something which, uh, is in some way immoral or not something that you, that you, should be desiring and then they get they come up and sit the end and that's always fun to watch that's sort of you know very much twilight right. zone kind of thing but but this isn't really that or if it is like everybody is doing it you know right yeah um there, there's i was sorry go no so there's variations of that where yeah there's one person who you know is the one that gets to come up in or like other ones where everyone is kind of a bad person and they're all getting it at the same time <laughs> So yeah, there's a couple. I mean, obviously we've, we're in the season five, so we're doing right. different variations on that theme. But that right. is the basic structure. But I thought this was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, it really moved. I have to say, I was mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, it was weird because it's such a. And I'm sorry, I'm sure people would be like, "You're studying the obvious here," but it's like a 25 minute yeah play, really, and 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 it's like five minutes before you even get into it between the the seemingly endless HBO logo and then the <laughs> you know the Crypt Keeper stuff and and then you're finally there. Um, but I have to say, I was totally fooled by like it never occurred to me that the people in the bar were con artists, you know, and I thought that was uh, a lot of fun. And I have to say, I liked. Um, I like Lou Diamond Phillips and, and Priscilla Presley. I yeah. thought they were. Mm-hmm. I thought they were. Uh, I thought they were a lot of fun. I was just there was a couple of things that that, and I'm all over the place here. But clearly, I guess part of this was about what we would now call toxic masculinity. It's this yeah. bunch of dudes sort of ganging up on this woman, but it kind of opens with like some really unpleasant language directed towards Priscilla Presley. And I, I, having seen the totality of it, I know what they, the, the writer was getting at, but I'm like, well, this seems mean and unpleasant and uncalled for. And why is Priscilla Presley in her underwear in a, in a cemetery? And uh, um, so, but, you know, but, but like I said, they're, they're moving at a rate of knots. The one thing I really didn't like was the fact that, Priscilla Presley dies at the end. I thought it would have made yeah. it been a much better twist if, if, for some reason, all the guys were in the in the grave, and then I've no idea why she decided to to set herself on fire. That seemed like a that's unless she thought that they were going to murder her. I guess. Yeah, I mean, you have to anyway, you, have, you but, have to take into account a this is HBO in the nineties, so they're they're trying to push the envelope with you know sexuality and the language that they can use that other like other networks can't so they i think mm. they're kind of flaunting it a little bit 
right again right, this right. is like the age of like married with children with the he-man <laughs> uh woman hater club but which again there there it's kind of played as a joke like you know how mm-hmm. pathetic these guys are where again looking at it from this lens i was totally like oh no are they are they really going like are they going full on uh woman hater here and i was really worried for a little while about what yeah. was going and then at least like she had her badass moment and yeah it sucks that she sacrificed herself but at least like I, I thought it was going to end with them like forcing her to be in the coffin and burying her alive. And I was like, All right. I, I yeah. really, I was, that's where I thought it was going to go. And I'm but really I, glad it did it. I will say the episode doesn't give a good explanation for why she does it, mm-hmm. but it's connected to the comic. And yeah. I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So go, yeah, keep going. No, I just thought, and I am the king of believing. I know we're not, I know we're talking about a TV show rather than mm-hmm. a, uh, a movie, but I'm the king of like believing that all movies should be 90 minutes. So, so <laughs> I'm not generally uh, a person suggesting that you should give more time to things. But I was like, oh, I would have, I would have watched some more of this, you know. Yeah. Or maybe even this is a movie, you know. Um, yeah, that's kind of the curse. Think. That's the curse and the blessing of Tales of the Crypt is they they have to be the exact same length. Uh, right. Almost almost every episode is within a few minutes. It seems like one is a double episode. That's like a very special circumstance. So either either you want more, like yeah, they could have definitely made this into like a movie, or the episode's not working and you like just want it to be over, so you <laughs> get to that, so you get to the crit part at the end. So it's kind of like, it's a balancing act where some you want more, some you want less. Yeah, it's yeah, best. But- it's obviously best to be wanting more than than, than thinking that was too much. Um, but no, I thought it was, I mean, I, outside of the Naked Gun movies, I don't really mm. remember seeing Priscilla Presley and all yeah, that much, no. although she was on Dallas, right? Am, yeah. I, am I right? It's yeah, probably, for like 100 between, episodes or something. Between the oil and Priscilla Presley and it being in a desert, obviously, I just, and, and the time, I kept on thinking of, of Dallas for some reason. Um, but I thought, I, and I thought Priscilla Presley was great, and uh, I thought Lou Diamond Phillips was great. And it's always fun to see Alan Ruck. Yes. And he must have been getting to, and I speak as a man in my 50s myself, but he must have been getting to the right at the end of being able to play like the kid in this. Because he was, I mean, it's one of those weird things. I don't know if you're a fan of Succession, but Alan Ruck is only like seven years younger than Brian Cox. I mean, he was quite, he was, he was, he was not a teenager when he was on, uh, when he was in Ferris Bueller. Yeah, uh, I was um I was just looking at some of their IMDBs. He was 29 when he did Ferris Bueller. That is insane. <laughs> um um uh, but it's always fun to see him and he has actually done quite a lot of horror. I think he likes um horror. A friend of I, an acquaintance of mine, Mike Williamson, who's a lovely guy uh, who lives in LA, directed a short uh with uh, Alan Ruck, a horror short which I thought was great. Although the other thing that struck me, and uh, again, I apologize uh, for my lack of knowledge of the subject, but there was nothing supernatural about this, right? I mean, no, I, I, no not, not, not all of them are supernatural. Right. Okay. Um, some of them um, are like, yeah, some are more just like human stories. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are supernatural tend to be like something pops up more towards the end. Or like, it's just like one aspect, but largely because of budget, they can't have like, you know, mm-hmm. a, a zombie or something like throughout they can have like a ton of zombies or anything they just all have the budget for that kind of thing so like right, there might be right. like something supernatural towards the end of the episode 
And then maybe uh, this is something we'll get in later, but then I started obviously IMD being the people responsible and came across the rather uh, unusual career of the of the director of the episode, mm-hmm. um, which who who was a uh, let me just look it up here, but he was a um, his makeup and hair for right, but yeah. but the what appeared to be the makeup and hair uh, guy for. Um, you know, the 80s with, with uh, uh, was Die Hard and Predator 2. Roadhouse. Um, he was in charge of, of uh, what's his name? Patrick Swayze's hair in Roadhouse. Right. You have to think for that. <laughs> right. Oh, so this is, this is like, this is like remarkable hair that, uh, <laughs> that he's looking after. And then, um, you know, moved into directing, which is, you know, I mean, I mean, clearly, if 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 you're interested in directing and you're around productions a lot, that's going to give you a head start. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just interesting that is not. I mean, I mean that is. I mean, John Peters famously, the the producer, uh, was the uh, sort of the hairstylist in LA in LA before he became a producer and a uh, and then a, a studio chief. But it's a somewhat unusual uh, route to become a director, right? Mm-hmm. And just to give a name, that's Paul Abascal, if I'm saying that right, um, was the director. Yes. And he also, he did a lot of TV, the lot of episodes, especially of Lands and Nash Bridges, were his two most prolific uh, items. But then, yeah, he did a lot. Of- and the, 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 the writer went on to be a producer on Hannibal and uh, a writer right. producer on Hannibal and Pushing Daisies, right? Yeah, so, so he- the episode is written by Scott Nymphero, and he's done, he did like 10 episodes of Tales. So he's, he's done mm. a lot of Tales. He wrote, he wrote on Pushing Daisies and Hannibal. He wanted to produce X-Men, Mordella Blood, Demon Knight, and again, Hannibal, and Once Upon a Time. And he unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But and then pretty- you've got this sort of great supporting cast of, of geezers, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> who, none of whom I could have named, to be honest with you, although I should have known Rory Calhoun's name, I guess. But, um, That's the one I would have named. Yeah. I, I couldn't have named any, any of them, but have cumulatively seen them in i'm sure hundreds of things you know um all right so jody what did you think of this episode yeah like uh like clark was saying i love a good con movie um although mine are probably a little less classy because uh like when i think of a good con movie i think of like wild things because wild things actually (laughs) it's a good con movie uh but uh also uh the handmaiden which i watched uh with joe Mm -hmm. on films at first sight the handmaiden is fantastic it's a great 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 con movie um, and so, yeah, I love a movie that uh, flips it back on me and makes me realize that I've been wrong the entire time. And that's what this episode did, because, you know, you know about some cons. I assumed Larry was dead. Larry coming back at the end, complete shock. The guys in the bar being in on it, complete shock. Uh, so, yeah, this is not a typical Tales from the Crypt. There's very little horror in it. Uh, but I thought it was just a really well done, especially with all of these actors, you know, you've got such a great cast and they're really playing it up. Um, the, the one guy who played, uh, Alan Ruck's dad, uh, Noble Willingham, I think is his name. Uh, he, I just realized his cat, his character name is Mr. Peter Meyer. I think that's a Ferris Bueller reference, isn't it? I don't remember, but I need to double check that. But I feel like that's a Ferris Bueller reference. Um, but anyway, when they were in the um, funeral home, and uh, she asked, like, "Where did you find him?" and they were like, "We found him in the bedroom 
we found him in the and they just played up this like local yokel kind of hick thing so well that i had no idea that they could be in on it you know uh so yeah i, I just thought i thought it was really well done the twists were well done i didn't exceed them any of them coming great performances from everybody uh i Roy Calhoun, Rory Calhoun is one of the ones that I would have recognized, not from his early work, because, you know, he's he did tons and tons of Westerns back in the day. But I know him from his like later years. He did. Uh, well, on my wall back here, I've got a thing that says it takes all kinds of critters to make farmer rent since fritters. He was a motel hell. Right. Uh, he was really good in a, a B movie called Angel set in L.A. about a uh, it sounds really trashy, but it's actually a good movie. <laughs> I, I, I love the cover for that. Yeah, it's uh, she's a high school student by day, Hollywood hooker by night. It sounds like a trash movie, but it actually is really good. It's about family and like chosen family and uh, taking care of each other uh, on the streets of L.A. And he plays a street performer who's a washed up cowboy. I love him in that. Um, so, yeah, just great performances all around. Great stuff. I, I, I really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, um, I, I really. Lo- yeah, this is a really fun episode. It's probably a little too overstuffed for the time yeah. given. Um, I think if they would have simplified it, it would have been even a little, just a little bit, it would have been even better. But you know, who what, who are you going to cut out of this movie? Because all the performances are so good. Yeah. Um, again, Lou Diamond Phil is one of those guys that you just always like. He's just so he's just so charismatic and likable. Um, I remember him. I'm for some reason my parents let me watch the Bomba when I was a very young kid. <laughs> so I always just always had that connection with him. Um, even he was in the young young guns one and two and in this like I remember um the first power and bats. Um I remember watching that when I was uh when that came out. He, he was in love. He's done so many things. Like he had one of those huge INDB. It's like how do I even represent him in that? Um <laughs> uh, but he he's did a in, lot of um he's in that movie that that doomed movie Supernova. Yeah. But, uh, the the sort of sci-fi horror movie in space. Yeah, he's been so mad like three or four quite well-known directors uh mm. try to try to fix it including francis coppola i seem to recall right um but I, that's kind of fun i remember seeing that in uh that was kind of my first thing i was i was um traveling from london to new york to interview somebody or other and i went to see supernova uh in the theater in um the now in what used to be i think the virgin store in times square which isn't there anymore but it was my first experience of like a really rowdy uh american uh, audience yeah uh, <laughs> the kind that you don't necessarily get in britain and i was kind of like and they were reacting to the movie in within a sort of stunned and disappointed and somewhat angry not really angry but uh very rowdy fashion I remember thinking, like, is there a riot going to, am I going to be part of this great supernova riot of, you know, whatever year it came out? Yeah, because I think it um, came out around the time that Event Horizon came out, too. So, again, got kind of yeah. projects. Um, and then we have, again, Priscilla Presley playing Gina. She was in, the t- like, 170 episodes of Dallas, something like that. And then wow. she was also, again, in Naked Gun, which I don't know why my parents let me watch that as young as I did, but that definitely had an impression on me. Um, and then also, again, we talked about Noble Willingham. He was in Paper Moon, he was in The Howling. Um, he was also in La Bamba, he was also he was in City Slickers, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, East Ventura, but he was also Mr. Binford from Home Improvements. 
I guess oh, it was like the owner of the okay. company that Tim Allen worked for. He showed up a couple times. Alan Ruck has one of those sneaky careers that like it's not flashy, but he's always doing something solid and just kind of there. Um, this is might be the most unhinged I've seen him in the movie, <laughs> uh, which is really fun. Um, again, he was also in the Young Guns movie, so another connection with Lou uh, Diamond, and he was in Speed, he was in Twister, he was in The Happening, um, and he also was recently in Freaky, I and mean, he has a, probably one of the best scenes in the whole movie. The, the, best, the best death in Freaky, for sure. Yeah. Spoilers, he gets sawed in half, and they show you yes. the whole thing. It's, it's so amazing. Good. And he was on uh, Spin City for like yes. know, yeah. eight years or whatever. Right? I watch yeah. that show a lot, too. <laughs> And he's oh. he's so good on Succession, I have to say. Yeah. I, I'm uh, uh, so glad that he's. Uh, uh, although on that he's the sort of most buttoned down one, I guess. Um, but he's always a treat as well. I've interviewed him. Uh, I interviewed him for the last season of Succession. He was great. Nice. Uh, Rory Calhoun. We, we already talked about him, but he started acting 1944. Like, come mm-hmm. on. And he's yeah. been in so many things. It's this, a crazy this, career. This was his last performance, too. Yeah, this is his last performance, which happens. I hate to say it. <laughs> there's a good chunk of people who tell us the crypt was one of their last performances. Um, well, if you if you employ enough people, you know, yeah. it's yeah. like law of averages. It, it's like whenever there's a big rock festival. And I, I guess I shouldn't. I'm not making fun of this. But whenever there's a, a big rock festival, what will happen quite often is that somebody will die. And then people are like, "Oh, this was badly managed." And then the over, you know, rightly or wrongly, the person running the rock festival will point out that if you have two hundred thousand people, you know, in a field for three days, and statistically, there is a chance, a good chance, yeah. one of them somebody's well, going to die or something. Well, I think with Tales from the Crypt, because it's so well known, because it's such a short commitment, they're able to get actors who just want to come in and work for a day. And just maybe get their name a little bit out there. Um, so I think sometimes they get older classic actors, um, like from like Golden Age era, to come in and just do like a couple of days or so work and just kind of, you know, just to be out there a little bit. Um, I will say the other, the other thing that struck me was, and, and again, I apologize if mm-hmm. I'm stating the obvious, but, um, you know, in a lot of ways, this was like really prestigious tv right i mean it was it was hbo you had movie stars um but watching it what i'm reminded of uh, what struck me was i thought yeah but they only had like they didn't have they weren't they didn't have much time to shoot this you know right. what i mean that that the, they had as you said that some of the elements were you know they could be raunchy um like I say, Lou Diamond Phillips, Priscilla Presley, that's a headline grabbing cast. And I'm I am aware that, you know, they had a lot of big stars coming in and, and uh appearing and, and occasionally directing. But it's that thing that it's the time, you know what I mean? That that's mm-hmm. the, the lack of budget is reflected in the time. And so you're looking at this and you're like, yeah, they're making this in the same time as like you know. What, you know, they they just don't really have the time to do this justice, I guess, you know. Yeah. To some degree. Um, and then uh, I do want to also, we always like to highlight John Kassir because he's, you know, he's the man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked to him on a handful of times. He's always a delight. But um, I just want to point out a couple of his lesser known uh, roles. So there's a movie, I think it was 1984, called The Monster Mash, the movie. Um, he played Igor in that. That's always a fun one. And he, there was a remake of, Pete's, of uh, Pete's Dragon, and he does the voice for the dragon Elliot. But he doesn't really have any lines, but he, like, emotes. Yeah. 
So there that was the recent the recent mm-hmm. remake. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the one that Disney won from I don't know what year it was, like the sixties or whatever it was. Where right. it's all like kind of goofy, or this is more of a serious somber one. And I, I just tried to look at it for uh, just, I, I just watched a couple of scenes and I, I realized the dragon doesn't actually talk, but it's him kind of emoting like with grunts and kind right. of vocal. Um, I have seen vocal. that. It's it's a it's a good kids movie. Yeah, so that, that must be an interesting uh, challenge for uh, an actor, a voiceover actor, to like how do you give emotion without words, kind of thing. Yeah, because I was directed by, and I just looked this up, but I, was, I I thought it was sort of somebody of note. But I was directed by David Lowry, who made a ghost story and mm-hmm. the old man and the gun and the Green Knight from last year, which I haven't seen, but a lot oh. of people really like. Oh. So, so we yeah. need a crossover with the Green Knight and the Green Dragon. <laughs> I guess so. Yes. Um, then also, uh, John Casier has done a lot of voices uh, for video games. So he did uh, mm-hmm. the recent Bayonetta series. They just came out with a new one, and he does Enzo and that. Um, but yeah, well, he's he's be- definitely a lot of. I mean, he's a lot of fun on the show as well. Oh, you know, yeah. um, on the on the on the episode. Uh, yeah, what a great cast. So yeah, again, this is a great cast for this movie. If anything, it's a little over ambitious, but you know, they got the big blow up, um, you know, explosion at the end where you know they just probably built this little cemetery out in the, out you know outside of Los Angeles in some little desert area. Like okay. We're going to build this knowing we're going to blow the hell out of it. And that's kind of your money shot for the movie, uh, for the show. And again, I'm glad that they like, I, I didn't realize the other guys were going to be in it or Larry was going to come back, but I did figure Jerry was going to turn on Gina. I, I, I figured that yeah, was going that, to happen. That wasn't a shock. Um, but I didn't realize that it was going to be everyone. And then I was like, uh, again, I got, I got really worried that they were just going to like bury her. And I was like, oh, you know, women suck. You know, we're going to go get beers while she's buried alive. And that's the end of the episode. So I'm a little glad that they, like, you know, took it there. Um, all right, Jody, why don't you do the comic comparison? Okay. So uh, this came from Tales from the Crypt, issue number 34, uh, March 1953. Script by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, like most of them. Art by George Evans. The art's really good in this one. And so we, this is one of those that they really did take a lot from the comic in some funny ways, too. Uh, a couple mm-hmm. of men go into a small town and convince the townsfolk that there's oil in the area. Uh, there's a field guy and a salesman, just like Gina and Jerry. So it's kind of the same con, except for they uh, do it in this, they set it up in a city park on public land. And they tell the mayor that they can help them drill instead of getting a big company to come in, but it's going to cost $60,000 for the equipment to do the drilling. And so the mayor decides to form a corporation and sell stock to raise the money, which is exactly the, the solution that Rory Calhoun's character proposes in the episode and they shoot him down. That's directly from the comic. So they, they, they took that line from the comic and then were like, nah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do exactly what the comic did. Uh, after raise and through this whole thing, they're trying to present themselves as one of them is the businessman and the other guy is the field guy. And so the businessman, he has a bad habit of smoking all the time, always has a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And the other guy keeps telling him, you're not going to look professional enough with that cigarette hanging out of your mouth. And, and that comes up like five or six times. And uh, after raising the six k or sixty thousand uh, dollars, the field agent guy fakes his death so that when the town realizes they've been had, the guy who they would blame 
is dead. And so the other guy plays up like he didn't even know that it was fake. And um, so they bury him. And while he's in the coffin, this strange liquid starts bubbling up around him. And so he's almost like drowning in the coffin. And the business side of the business guy comes and he digs him up. And right as he digs him up, uh, the, the man who'd been inside the coffin realizes that's oil all around him. They actually really did struck oil. And when he comes up out of the coffin, he tells his partner, it's oil. And his partner is so shocked that he drops the cigarette out of his mouth that he's been smoking and it blows both of them up. And so there's our ending. Why did Gina blow herself up? Because they were trying to stay true to the comic where everybody blows up in the end. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense in this one. It's kind of a comedy of uh, they they screwed up. Two bumbling guys uh, blew themselves up. Gina is much more competent, so it doesn't make as much sense in the episode for her to blow herself up. I would think she could have at least, you know, kind of gotten out of there and tossed it. Um, but according to IMDb trivia, which is notoriously not true, um, that wouldn't have blown anything up anyway. In either circumstance, <laughs> uh, crude oil like that will not explode uh, on impact. It has to have a whole lot more heat uh, than right. what uh, a cigarette would have done. Mm-hmm. So the reality would have been Gina would have said those you know badass lines and flicked the cigarette, and then it would have gone out at their feet. Uh, much less dramatic. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's the, the ending of the episode was directly pulling from the comic, even though it made more sense in the comic than it did in the episode. So. It's a fun little comic, uh, a uncharacteristically uh, comedic ending for a Tales from the Crypt story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, thought, I really like that comic. That was a good one. Except, yeah. except they kind of they harped on the cigarette way too, too much. Many times in the comic, yeah. like every other panel was about. Yeah, no, it was to put out a cigarette. It's like if Chekhov's gun, instead of they mentioned it on the mantle, every other scene, someone's like, "Hey, see this gun." Hey, what about that gun over there? What's that gun doing? <laughs> and then finally at the end, they're like, oh, someone got shot with the gun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. But uh, no, it was fun. It's a good comic. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on to our episode rankings or uh, ratings. So we do uh, zero to five, five being the best. Uh, you can do half points if you want. Um, obviously, Clark, you, you we've seen some of the episodes, so our rating might be a little bit different, but. Than yours, but um, I got no. Guess. It's like it's like the Big Lebowski. I've got no yeah. frame of reference to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> if you just say like just whatever your gut tells you, what would you rate this episode? Uh, I'm gonna give it a, a generous three. I think. All right, Jody. I'm gonna go just a little higher, mainly just because this cast. Uh, I think a three and a half. It's a. It's just a really fun episode. It doesn't have some of those classic tales from the crypt to it you know like there's not as much uh the blood and guts and all that stuff that you expect not very much of a horror story but as far as just a good con story i really enjoyed it yeah i'm going to 3.5 as well it's it's a fun episode it's not it's it could use a little it, i would have reduced a couple things like character wise a little bit of plot simplified a little bit and again there isn't really any gore it's really just people talking in, in rooms the whole time except for the explosion yeah um, but again, John Cassier is an episode, you gotta love that, and the rest of the cast is just great. But yeah, it's 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 not top tier, but it's it's definitely it's definitely one you wouldn't want to skip. Yeah, let's put it that absolutely. 
um, in the pantheon of Tales from the Crypt. All right, now we're going to kick it over to our friend, Uncle Al. Hi, this is Alan. Oil's Well That Ends Well was, in a lot of ways, a quintessential Scott Nimmerfro episode. Now, for starters, I say that because, of course, Scott wrote it, and that almost automatically means it's a great script. Scott wrote some of the best crypt episodes there are. He wrote 10 episodes in all. But Scott had no control over who would direct his episodes. Russell Mulcahy directed Brass Hearses, a great episode. Freddie Francis, who directed the English feature film Tales from the Crypt, directed Scott's Fatal Capers episode when we were in London. Crypt's executive producers, Joel and Dick especially, used Crypt as both a testing lab and a favor repository. They test first-time directors, which meant we teach first-time directors how to direct. Or the executive producers would use a Crypt directing slot to do something nice for someone they liked. That didn't always work out so well for the episodes. When you write as many as Scott did, the odds are going to catch up with you. Scott got more than a few of those first-time directors with mixed results. Most worked out fine, but some... That was the case when Paul Abiskel got the slot to direct Oil's Well. Paul wanted to direct, but then everyone in Hollywood wants to direct. Up till then, the closest Paul had actually gotten to directing was doing Mel Gibson's hair in the Lethal Weapon movies. Those were Dick and Joel movies. Paul was part of the larger Crypt family. So was Scott. There wasn't anything to be done about it. At the end of the day, Paul did a good job. He's a good director. It's a good episode with a rollicking script filled with quotable Nimmerfroisms. Because it was a great script, it drew a great cast. Scott was especially pleased about getting Priscilla Presley. And about getting Priscilla Presley to speak the line, Gentlemen, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And today has been a real bitch. My recollection is that in the end, even Scott was happy with this episode. See you next time. And we're back. All right. Um, so usually Mondo does song of the day and, um, you know, he comes up with these big convoluted stories to get us there. But um, I'm filling in for him. So I'm going to do it a little bit more simple. Um, but, you know, we uh, it doesn't really need to be said, but obviously Priscilla, well, uh, Priscilla Presley was married to Elvis Presley. So I'm going with an Elvis song, uh, but I'm doing a cover of an Elvis song. We're going to do, in honor of our um, British guest, I'm going to do uh, Suspicious Minds by the Fine Young Cannibals. Okay. Yeah. I <laughs> I just want to see the reaction to somebody who is listening to this playlist that Mondo has on Spotify. Yeah. And they've just got this on shuffle and it's, you know, the songs that Mondo likes and the growly vocals. And, and then all of a sudden... <laughs> We get suspicious minds. <laughs> but, um, I thought the- thematically, there's a lot of suspicious oh, minds yeah. in this episode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Makes perfect sense. And um, I-, I actually really liked the new Elvis movie. I saw it um, in theaters. My- I t- took my wife on a date, and um, it's-, it's a lot, but um, I-, I, enjoy- I had a good time with it, except for <laughs> someone almost started a fight in the theater, and like a, a couple with like some kids walked out. Is there <laughs> like, people were using language at each other? So, you know our ruckus american movie going crowds i uh i i saw elvis on a plane just a couple of days ago actually much as baz lerman uh, did not intend me to, to no, watch it, I'm assuming. Right, right. um uh and i thought it was pretty good i've realized over time that the music biopic is kind of my least favorite genre um i just hate that sort of uh you know um 
oh, I was listening to the radio. It's all Gaga. Wait a second. That could be the name of a song. I just, that, that just drives me insane. Um, but I thought, uh, uh, I really liked Elvis. And what I liked a lot more was the Weird Al movie. I was about, I, yeah. I was, I was teeing yeah. up to see if you were going to talk about that. That movie is amazing. Yeah, that was that was fantastic. Because um, it takes exactly what you just said and just turns it. And I'm sure I'm going to offend thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Weird Al, of British Weird Al fans. But <laughs> but Weird Weird Al doesn't really have uh, that. He is not as well known in the UK as he is in America. Mm-hmm. Like I knew Eat It, and that was really the beginning and the end of it. Um, which I'm setting up to. <laughs> I was watching Weird with my girlfriend, who knows nothing about Weird Al at all. <laughs> and so uh, she was enjoying it, but occasionally uh, she would turn to me and she would be like, he was shot to death at the Grammys? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like you know he wasn't, because I point, earlier I pointed out that, that he had the cameo. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he's not bad. But... Right. Um, and well, and the fact that he's doing um, what's what I call it, uh, Amish Paradise, like twenty years before. Yes, um, but it was just—I mean, my my girlfriend's much brighter than me, but I think it was just that that she had no idea about mm-hmm. uh, who Weird Al was, and there's so much. And if you don't know who he is, there's so much information coming at you. You know, some of which is true. Uh, mostly it isn't, um, but it was just fascinating for her to be. She was like, you know, I, "Did he get murdered at the coming? Like, no, he did not get murdered at the Grammys. <laughs> like he's the least likely person to get murdered at the Grammys." Right. <laughs> well, it's basically a parody of a biopic. <laughs> yes, now. and so I, I enjoyed that immensely. But I would suggest that that's more in the this is Spinal Tap camp, right? The, like right, the, uh, the genuine uh, biopic, yeah. like Walk Hard. That yeah. too, I love, and I'd almost yeah. put. Um, there's a great movie called Twenty Four Hour Party People yeah. about uh, factory records in Britain, which is mo- mostly based in truth, but has quite a surreal side to it. And factory records is such a uh, the story of factory records is so demented that it sounds like something that people have made up anyway. So um, that's my other recommendation. Not that you're asking for recommendations. No. <laughs> um, I mean, if you had to define my like middle school years, which I, I don't know if you what the equivalent is, but for like you know, 12, 13, 14 into 15, mm-hmm. like it would be defined by listening to Weird Al, watching Tales in the Crypt, and playing Super Nintendo. <laughs> that's like, yeah, yeah that's the holy trinity of you know, yeah. my, my formative years, yeah, not as. Like I say, I hate to because I'm sure, I'm sure maybe he does sell out big places in Britain, but there's, there's certain. Um, like no one's ever heard of Dave Matthews in the UK. That man does not. That man does not exist. In fact, when there was the one point where his label in Britain um, uh, made a big push for Dave Matthews, he was huge in America. No one knew him in the states, and they had like a billboard campaign. That my memory is that it was just who is Dave Matthews. That's and it, it turned out people in the UK did not care to investigate the answer to that question. That's um, really interesting. Well, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan of a lot of British music. So I saw like Dizzy Rascal and like, right. It must have been 2006 at a club in Portland, Oregon. And there must have been like 300 people. Uh huh. Like this tiny crowd. Like I, I was up in the front row and I gave him a high, we were like high fiving while he was doing his set. And like no one else had 
Because I'm sure if that concert was in England at the time, it would have been, you know, arena size. Absolutely. And there was, um, there's this, there certainly was, the, I mean, I used to write a lot about music. I was a, a I worked for a music magazine called Blender in the, mm-hmm. in the early yep. aughts. And there was this, so I was going to lots of shows, and there was this sort of weird phenomenon where a band would get absolutely huge in Britain, like a British band. The classic example of this is The Darkness, who were yep. like yep. a sort of, I don't really know how to describe like, them really, but in the tradition of Queen, but the hair the, metal, helmet, yeah. hair metal kind of parody. But yes, but but both they were they were both a parody of hair metal, but also hair metal. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and they were, but they were huge in uh, America and Britain. But then so bands would get big in Britain, and then would come and start playing club shows in America, but particularly with New York. They would book like the Barry Ballroom, which is just a couple, you know, a few hundred people. But what would happen is everybody, <laughs> everybody, the only people that would come were British people because they would either fly over from Britain because it's cheaper to wanted, fly, right? If you wanted to see the darkness in Britain, you'd be looking at like going to see a, a an arena show essentially. Whereas in New York, you could still see them. Um, at the Barry Ballroom, or they were just like Brits already living in New York. And I remember going to see The Darkness, and and uh, uh, at one point the lead singer was like, is anybody here American? And there was like <laughs> almost total silence because everybody there was Britain. And that's, I mean, the thing is that, that, that the idea of those kind of shows is that you come over to break America by playing to Americans. There's no point <laughs> really you know, uh, bringing all your, you know, uh, doing an expensive club date tour to play to a bunch of British people. But uh, that was always pretty interesting. Yeah. All we right. are way off the subject. Of no, that's fine. No, I, I love talking about <laughs> we're, that. We're, we're off the subject all the time on this. Yeah, show. that's fine. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. I sh- I, maybe I should have done a Dizzy Rascal or something from the streets. Um, <laughs> no, no, I thought I thought Fine Young Cannibals are an excellent band. So that's uh, yeah. and and Roland Gift had something of a of an acting career um, himself, the lead singer of Fine Young Cannibals. So yeah. All right, Jody, give us some uh, horror movie news. Okay, so um, we are post Halloween now, so the news has slowed down considerably. Uh, we're no longer in this torrent of new releases and everything, but there is still some news. Uh, a trailer was released uh, this week for a movie called Christmas Bloody Christmas, directed by Joe Bagos, who did VFW and Bliss, both movies I really like yes. a lot. Uh, this is about a killer robot Santa Claus, and it's coming to shutter on December 9th. It looks really cool. I, I like Joe Bagos. I do like Christmas horror movies. There's just something about mixing those two things that I really enjoy. So I'm looking forward to this one. And uh, my next piece of news actually isn't about movies. It's about podcast because yeah. Jordan Peele is executive producing a podcast called quiet part loud. It's going to be co-produced by Gimlet and monkey paw. And Peele says that he wanted to make the scariest podcast of all time. And this is what he's releasing. It's uh, coming to Spotify on November 15th. I, I guess, I don't know if it's like the full thing is dropping or if it's going to be a weekly release. Uh, but here, here's the uh, the plot synopsis here. Rick Egan, a fear-mongering right-wing radio host who loses his platform in the wake of 9-11 for spreading xenophobic rumors surrounding a group of missing Muslim teenagers. Eight years later, the washed-up Egan is slumming it on the convention circuit when a mysterious woman offers a tantalizing revelation. 
one of the missing teens has reappeared. Egan embarks on a crusade for vindication and ultimately makes a Faustian bargain with a demonic shape-shifting sound monster known as the blank, which thrives on hatred. So, I mean, that sounds interesting to me. And uh, Gimlet uh, and Monkey Paw, these are like the big guys in the podcast game. So when we say immersive audio experience, you know, it's going to be fully like sound effects and music and there's there's big actors in it. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this. By the time uh, this episode comes out, the at least the first episode of this will be out on Spotify only. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too much into audio dramas, but that's I'll, I'll give that a try. I, I I've liked quite a few. But it's especially... also it's also one of the writers is um is uh, Clay McLeod Chapman, who's one of the best uh, sort of horror novelists around. You could you can I recommend pretty much all of his. All yeah, his, his, I'm 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 very excited for this one. Mm-hmm. I, I used to listen to a lot of audio dramas, and I haven't as much recently. But this might pull me back in. I, I, I'm excited for it. Um, going back to the the Killer Santa thing for a moment. Oh, yeah. um, so we have a big convention coming up here in uh, Los Angeles called Season Screamings, um, oh. where it's kind of like a, a holiday themed horror convention. And um, I was just kind of, you know, me. I'm always I'm, I'm an eternal uh, promoter, you know, of, of the podcast. <laughs> I'm always looking for something. So I had an idea of doing a screening of the Tales of the Crypt episode all through the house. At the, oh, nice, uh, yeah. At the thing. So I quickly emailed the guy. He's like, that's a great idea. Unfortunately, we're only like three weeks away from the event, and like, we need more time to get the right something, but maybe next year. So I'm just imagining like a ton of like people dressed up as Killer Santas watching and all through the house. <laughs> that's like my, my vision for that. Um. Maybe you've talked about this in the podcast before, but there's also, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Joe Bagos's too. I must, uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, but there's a movie starring David Harbour called Violent Night yes. uh, coming yeah. down the pike, uh, which I had the pleasure of seeing at New York Comic Con. And it's like if uh, John McClane was Santa in Die Hard, essentially, <laughs> okay. is the. Is the uh, is the premise, and um, so the real the real Santa is taking on terrorist thieves, essentially, uh, and that is, I mean, and I mentioned it as well because it was directed by Tommy Vicola, who made the Dead Snow movies, which oh, are uh, Nazi yeah. zombie movies. Yeah. Those are great, and um, he's made some other movies which um, have been fine, but I think haven't really featured the sort of gory deranged tone as the dead snow movies. Uh, so I didn't have high hopes for violent night in that department, but I have to say uh, they do not soft pedal the violence in, in violent night. Um, if, if you want to see David, a, a beefy David Harbor deal it out to a bunch of uh, heavily armed uh, robbers, then, then this is very much the move, move for you. I had a blast. Yeah, I, I will definitely watch that. Yeah, that looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I I don't know what it is about holiday horror. There's just something something about mixing those two. I guess because maybe Christmas is supposed to be this time of like innocence and peace, and then you throw in some nasty monster violence, or and it just it works. Um, 
And I, I don't really have any other uh, horror news this week, except for uh, I just watched the original Suspiria with my 13-year-old daughter the other night, and that was fun. Uh, I got to break out my 4K and introduce her to an Italian horror all in one night. So, What did she think about it? Yeah, She liked it. She liked it. It's uh, different than the other kind of things we've watched, but uh, I think she really enjoyed it. Are you going to make her watch the remake now? Not sure about the remake. It's been a while since I've seen it. I might want to go back and see what's in there before I show it to a 13-year-old. I just want to see if she can sit through the whole thing. Yeah, it's long. My memory is that that's a lot more harrowing and, I think and so, depressing. Yeah. Gener- and I don't mean that as a criticism necessarily. No, no. Just... Oh, no. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But uh, for it might be a bit much, yeah. 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 All right. Thank you, Jody. All right, and that brings us to our last segment, our uh, dad advice. And, you know, whenever when, when we have a guest, um, I, I don't know if you're a father or not, but you're also obviously a successful uh, writer in your own right. So, Clark, I was wondering if you could share some advice that you've gotten that you want to share to our audience. Huh. Well, I'm not a father as far as I'm aware. Um, huh. um, <laughs> wow, that's a good... Uh... Or mentor, what would you give to a mentee, like as a mentor, mentee type of uh, advice? Well, I guess if the if I'm mentoring them, then then the advice is a bit, maybe a bit late by that point. But, I mean, I'm lucky enough to... Uh, have a job that I really love. And it can be quite stressful from time to time. And, uh, you know, it's I'm not always writing about things that I want to do, but I have to say I absolutely love it. And I've been doing it for, uh, you know, about 30 years now. And, and, and I find that my contemporaries have, have um, you know, still have jobs, but maybe in some cases are very much not as interested in their jobs as as they once were whereas i'm you know still completely fascinated by mine now of course my job is you know quite often to wake up and go and see a horror movie and then <laughs> and then and then like interview somebody about it so i'm not going to pretend i mean i think you know that, i mean that does sound like a good job but i guess my advice is to uh try to make your hobby your job you know mm-hmm. which is which is what i've which is what i've successfully done or in other words you know find uh um uh you know do do a job that you love you know having said which i'm gonna die a relatively poor man so uh, <laughs> um maybe i mean the other alternative is to find the thing that's gonna make you the most money and then you know you can retire early and get up and watch you know, horror movies on a Wednesday morning. So there are various ways of, of skidding this cat. But um, no, well, if you can, and obviously it's not possible for everybody, but if you can, if you can, if you can find a job that you really love, then, then you know, I, I do often sort of leap out of bed to, to, um, to go to work, which is, which is a lot of fun. Nice. Except I don't really go to work anymore. <laughs> but we are going back to the office. But met to metaphorically go to work to at right. least put on, at least put on some trousers. <laughs> yeah, somebody wants to come and uh, pay me to uh, talk about horror movies and podcast about them. You know, oh yeah, I'm in. And, and, I'm in. and give me and give me health benefits at the same time. I'm all for it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps up another episode. Clark, thank you so much for coming on. Where can yes, people find you? you? In fi- where can people um, find your book? They can find my book on the internet. Sorry, that sounds sarcastic, but it's not. I mean, it, it's from this great 
but relatively small publisher out of Cleveland. So uh, I can say it's in all good bookstores, but it isn't. Um, so, but it's, if you Google, it isn't even in all good bookstores, I have to say. It's uh, not Amazon. Do it, well, yes, but some people don't. Yes, you can definitely find it on Amazon. You can definitely find it on other um, uh, uh, internet uh, services. It is possible to buy paperback and hardback. Uh, so just Google Clark Collis and Shaun of the Dead or just, you know, Shaun of the Dead book or you got read on you and you'll you'll find it soon enough. Um, I regularly write for Entertainment Weekly um, and I'm on still on Twitter on at Clark Collis and Instagram and, and all of that. I'm pretty, uh, pretty findable on the whole. Excellent. All right. Well, we appreciate. Oh, next week we will be reviewing Halfway Horrible uh next episode we appreciate everyone for listening really appreciate we would really appreciate if you would give us a reading review on itunes or spotify and check out our patreon for bonus content also check out our youtube channel for videos of these podcasts including a new episode of vault of horror collectors where we look into the crimson room of the largest known collection of uh, memorabilia from uh bram stoker's dracula just in time for the 30th anniversary and with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypt. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should watch. But be careful what you ask for. You may get it. Ha 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 